Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. girl was just the bundle of energy and joy. Pretty much just a little happy kid. Sarah Skiba's cuteness. Sarah Ariel Skiba was born on July 27, 1989 to parents Michelle Russell and Paul Skiba. At the age of nine, Sarah lived in Colorado and shared time between her parents, who divorced when she was about four. Her father lived in Thornton, Colorado, and her mother lived a couple of hours away in Granby, Colorado. On February 7, 1999, Sarah was with her father, Paul, the owner of Tough Movers, a moving company and storage facility located at 7010 Raleigh Street in Westminster, Colorado. Paul and one of his employees, Lorenzo Deshaun Chivers, a father of two, had moving jobs in the city that day, and Sarah would tag along with them. All three traveled to Thornton about 10.30 a.m. and would stop for lunch about 1 p.m. in Lakewood, about 30 minutes northwest of Thornton. After lunch, they drove 20 minutes to their second and last moving job, which was in Morrison. They were last seen about 6 p.m., and then all three would disappear. When Paul didn't return Sarah to Michelle at the end of her weekend stay with him, she reported her daughter missing. It was soon discovered that 38-year-old Paul and 36-year-old Lorenzo were also missing. During the initial investigation, it was revealed that Paul's on-and-off girlfriend for six years, Teresa Donovan, lived with him in Thornton, Colorado. She had given birth to a baby boy three months earlier, named after Paul. But Paul had told his brother Gordon the week before that he questioned whether or not he was the father. He also complained that Teresa was irresponsible, sleeping all day, partying with the neighbor all night, and even leaving the infant in the care of nine-year-old Sarah while Paul was at work. Paul had rented a trailer for Teresa so she wouldn't be living in the house and constantly fighting with his mother, who also lived with him but shortly before she gave birth, he had moved her back into the house because he didn't trust her to care for the baby properly. Paul mentioned having plans to make Teresa move out by Sunday and sue for full custody if a paternity test showed he was the father. Teresa did call the police department and tell them Paul had never arrived back home. She also notified Paul's mother, who was out of state at the time, who called the police department as well. At the time of his disappearance, Lorenzo was living with a woman named Bobby Joe Donovan, Teresa Donovan's sister. Lorenzo met Paul through this connection and got the job at Tough Movers. 
When Lorenzo's ex-wife and mother of his children contacted Bobby Joe about his whereabouts, she strangely said that she knew he wasn't coming home and felt that something terrible had happened to him. The next day, Jerry Bobby, another of Paul's employees, arrived at the store and noticed that the company's large moving truck had been parked in a way he had never seen. He said it was parked front first and crooked, which was unusual because Paul was a neat freak who was anal about everything, so he would have never parked the truck that way. He said it looked like somebody had just pulled in the yard at 50 miles per hour and hit the brakes. He also noted that the lock on the front gate had been changed, leaving him unable to enter the parking lot. He said it was strange, but he had worked there long enough to know that Paul changed the lock whenever he fired someone. He waited outside the gate for Paul and Lorenzo to arrive, but they never did, so Jerry called the police. Three more days passed before a Westminster officer arrived at the scene. The officer told Jerry to open the gate, but because the lock had been changed, Jerry said he didn't want to cut it in case it could be used for evidence. He said this seemed to annoy the officer, who slammed his car into the fence before jumping onto his hood and over the gate. After entering the lot, Jerry noticed a puddle of motor oil partly covered with a piece of plywood in the van lot. He also noted that the officer was careless with evidence and didn't seem concerned. He pointed out that the truck was cleaned and was never clean. Instead, the officer grabbed the handle and quickly looked inside while contaminating evidence. Finally, the officer left the lot, convinced that the whole thing had wasted his time. Two days later, on February 13th, a friend and employee of Paul's, Rich Lesmeister, received a phone call from Teresa letting him know that Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo were missing. That afternoon, Rich, his wife, and Paul's mother met at the lot and climbed the fence to investigate. Unfortunately, by this time, the two men and child had been missing for an entire week. That's when they found two bullet holes in the side of the 1978 Chevrolet moving truck that Rick had previously been working on. The exterior of another moving truck also had blood smeared across it, and additional blood was near its windshield. There was hair on the truck's fender, and shell casings and blood were also found in the lot. The truck's 3-by-10-foot metal extension ramp was also missing, as were the straps and moving blankets. This was all overlooked by the investigating police officer and Jerry. When the police arrived, they were adamant, despite the blood and bullet holes, that no crime had taken place and threatened to arrest them if they didn't leave. They suggested that the smear of blood could have come from someone cutting themselves and wiping it on the truck. As for the bullet holes, maybe it had been shot at while it was out being driven. Rich told them that the truck with the bullet holes didn't have a motor, so it couldn't go anywhere. He knew this because he had not installed it yet. Paul's mother, Sharon Skiba, called Bob Martinez, another friend of Paul's. Bob joined the group at the yard around 10 p.m. and noted that it was chaotic with many people walking around, likely contaminating the crime scene. Meanwhile, the Westminster police argued that the case was not in their jurisdiction and that Thornton police should handle it. It appeared that no one wanted to take any responsibility. A missing person report for Sarah had been filed in Thornton 
so that they would handle the case. At around 3 a.m., police took everyone's information, told them to leave, and then towed the trucks away as evidence. Sharon asked the officers to secure the gate when they left, but the officers never did. The following day, the gate was wide open and no crime tape had been put up. It would be eight days after their disappearances before the first news report appeared. Then, however, the narrative was three people were missing in relation to a custody battle. The family searched for their loved ones in sewage pipes, culverts, fields, and anywhere else they could think of. A warrant was issued for Paul's arrest, as authorities assumed that Paul had taken Sarah and run away with her. Michelle and Paul had recently been in court over custody issues, and Michelle had also told Paul she might be moving out of state. On February 17, 1999, 10 days after they went missing, Lorenzo's vehicle was found parked at an apartment complex at 3809 68th Avenue in Westminster, several blocks from the Tough Movers lot and extremely clean. Ten more days later, on February 27th, Paul's car was discovered in an apartment complex parking lot at 3129 West Arkansas Avenue in Denver. Several of Paul's items and Sarah's backpack full of Beanie Babies were in the car. The usually clean vehicle was covered in mud. Unfortunately, despite how dirty it was, no fingerprints or handprints could be identified on it. Paul's mother, Sharon, wanted to keep his business going just in case he was still alive. So after two or three weeks, she asked the Thornton police if they could return his moving trucks. After returning the trucks to Sharon, Thornton police returned to look at them again. They apparently hadn't examined them while they had been in evidence. This time, agents from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation accompanied them. They applied luminol all over the trucks, which Rich Lesmeister suggested they did when they took them initially. The luminol showed a large amount of blood covering the back of the truck and cab. DNA tests proved that the blood on the truck's door was Paul's and the hair was Sarah's. The oil spilled on the ground turned out to be covering more blood. Investigators assumed the oil was spilled on purpose to hide the blood. The blood on the ground belonged to both Paul and Sarah. Strangely, Lorenzo's DNA was not discovered anywhere at the scene. Authorities announced they had enough evidence to suggest foul play five weeks after the three disappeared. I mean, seriously, my 12-year-old could have told you that on day one. A witness came forward and claimed to have heard a woman screaming at the lot the night of the disappearances. This likely could have been little Sarah's screams. According to investigators, Sarah made a phone call at 6.22 p.m., but no details of this call has ever been released. Paul's mother, Sharon, was expecting a call from him that evening, but that call never came. No one would see or hear from Paul, Sarah, or Lorenzo again after that night. Other witnesses later told police that the truck and evidence was seen leaving the lot seven or eight times that night before returning around midnight. This meant that their bodies were likely less than two hours away. It was speculated that the missing metal ramp could have been used to submerge the bodies in a lake. Vegetation was discovered in the truck radiator, 
so it was likely it had been to a lake. Investigators believe Lorenzo, Paul, and Sarah were ambushed and killed when they returned the truck to the lot. They think Paul was the probable target and his daughter and Lorenzo were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Canines and NecroSearch, a company specializing in the recovery of human remains, assisted in searches of lakes in the region. Teresa later went on the Montel Williams show and said that the police told her she failed a polygraph, but she claimed she would never hurt them. Instead, she suggested that drug dealers renting parking spaces in the lot had likely killed them because he had had trouble with them. It was also discovered that Paul had recently had trouble with Teresa's brother Tom, who was well known as a violent person. Jerry recalled Paul had fired Tom a few months earlier, and Tom made threats and threw rocks at the truck while driving by. Following the murders, Tom allegedly called Paul's mother Sharon and told her that her son and granddaughter had been shot to death and he was glad Paul was dead. Then, when he came across Sharon in person, he made a motion pretending to shoot her. Paul had also fired another employee at some point for stealing money. Although Lorenzo's DNA was not located at the crime scene, he was later determined not to be a suspect as he remained missing. It's speculated that he could have been forced to help dispose of Paul and Sarah's bodies and was killed elsewhere. After Paul and Sarah disappeared, Teresa stayed in the house with Sharon and the baby. Teresa's family came to the home and spent hours searching through Paul's things. They were looking for files relating to life insurance and who would take over Paul's business. They ultimately found nothing with Teresa's name on it. Then, a month later, Teresa moved out with the baby. She went to court in April to argue that she should control Paul's assets. However, Sharon had already been appointed temporary conservator of Paul's estate, meaning she would continue to pay Paul's bills and run the business. Teresa could only be granted control of Paul's assets if she could prove they were married. When asked why she objected to Sharon being the conservator of Paul's estate, Teresa said because her son is entitled to all of Paul's things as his only remaining heir. Teresa told the court that she and Paul had made plans to get married after the baby was born. Paul had bought her a ring at a half-price jewelry sale at the mall, and Teresa claimed it was her wedding ring. She claimed she didn't use Paul's last name Skiba on documents because she didn't want to lose the medical insurance that she had from her mother. She said Paul rented the trailer with the intention of living there together. On the rental application for the trailer, Paul had put their marital status as common-law married. Several witnesses rebutted Teresa's claims and said Paul had no intention of marrying her. Also, the trailer park manager testified Paul referred to Teresa as his girlfriend, not his wife. The manager said he listed it as common-law marriage because it would be cheaper to rent as a married couple. The judge ruled that there was no proof of a common-law marriage between Teresa and Paul, and you can't be married sometimes and not the rest of the time, and appointed Sharon the permanent conservator. However, she had to pay Teresa child support from Paul's estate because he had signed Paul's birth certificate and given the child his last name. Sharon continued to try to keep his business afloat, but it dissolved the year after the presumed murders. 
Years later, Sharon requested the court to order a paternity test for little Paul, but the judge denied it. Later, Teresa sent her paternity results showing that Paul was his biological child, but Sharon didn't know whether to trust the document or not. I mentioned earlier that a witness said they heard a woman screaming at the Tough Movers lot that night. According to an article, Teresa told Jerry Bobby that she had been at the Tough Movers yard that night and asked him not to tell the police. The article didn't give any information beyond that, for example, whether Teresa told Jerry what she was doing there, but it definitely raises some serious red flags. Lorenzo's mother sadly passed away in 2005 and Sharon in 2013. Unfortunately, they never got answers about what happened to their sons, or in Sharon's case, her son and granddaughter. As of October 2022, no bodies have ever been located, and this case remains unsolved. Roger John Ellison was born on March 11, 1963, to parents Ernest and Evelyn Ellison. He grew up with four siblings who all had a passion for skiing. At the age of 17, Roger was a senior at Cedar Edge High School in the small town of Cedar Edge, Colorado, where he was an honor student. He was described as intelligent and reserved, and his sole focus was on skiing, and that's all he ever talked about. He planned to attend Western State College in nearby Gunnison, for the fall of 1981 semester and had already paid his first upcoming dorm fee. In February 1981, Roger competed in the skiing competition at Telluride, hoping to earn a spot on the U.S. Olympic B team. However, he didn't make the team and was very upset, but was looking forward to the upcoming competition in Aspen that he was scheduled to compete in. On the morning of February 10, 1981, he rode the bus to school and briefly spoke to his locker mate, Mitch Coleman, where they shared a locker in the basement. Mitch saw Roger get some books out for his first class, and they made plans to meet later. Unfortunately, this was the last time Roger was ever seen alive, and he would never make it to his first class. His parents became very worried when Roger never arrived home from school. They waited for him all night, but there was still no sign of him. So by morning, they called the Delta County Sheriff, who told them they had to wait 48 hours to report him missing in case he had run away, but his parents knew this wasn't the case. When he left home that morning, he had a few dollars for lunch, and nothing was taken, not even his motorcycle or money in his savings. His parents began searching for him on their own, but were unable to find him. His family reported that he had been acting oddly in the month before his disappearance and appeared preoccupied. When his senior class graduated that May, fellow student Shauna Peterson Axtell accepted his diploma in his absence as his parents were crying in a car overlooking the ceremony on the football field. Delta County Sheriff Keith Waybell did not initially take Roger's disappearance seriously. He speculated that Roger might have gone to a ski resort in search of a job or something along those lines. But again, his parents knew that wasn't the case. Sheriff Waybell eventually put Roger's photos and description in local newspapers and alerted nearby law enforcement agencies to the case. 
In addition, his parents offered a large monetary reward for information leading them to Roger. Sadly, a few months after he disappeared, his father passed away. The school bus driver later said Ernest was at the bus stop every afternoon. Each day, Ernest would hang his head down and cry because Roger was never one of the students getting off the bus. Meanwhile, his mother became suspicious that John Pash could be involved, one of Roger's teachers and wrestling coach. However, Pash was at school that morning and has disputed her suspicions for the past several decades and a slew of rumors. She later passed away in 1992, and up until her death, she suspected John Pash's involvement in her son's disappearance. She believed Roger saw something in Telluride he should not have seen, and someone killed him over it. However, it is unclear if John Pash was in Telluride during the competition. Pash resigned from Cedar Edge in 1984 and relocated to Northern California. In 1994, Delta County Sheriff Bill Blair stated that he believes Roger never left Cedar Edge. Acting on a tip from a former classmate of Roger's, authorities dug up a section of the Taylor Mortuary Yard where Pash's home was when he lived near the school. Necro's search found six spots where land below the surface had been disturbed. Two sites were under the funeral home's concrete garage floor and four others in the mortuary yard. Authorities searched the area with ground-penetrating radar and saw some anomalies, including two under the concrete garage floor, but they decided not to dig there. The site they did search only unearthed one bone that had belonged to an animal. In the February 8, 1998 issue of the Daily Sentinel, Roy Ellison spoke about the last time he saw his younger brother. He recalled Roger sitting on the couch with his head dropped down like he had a lot on his mind. In September 1998, an unidentified man who claimed he was dying and needed to get something off his chest told the police that he and a friend spotted a man believed to be Roger Ellison in the woods northwest of Cedar Edge shortly after his disappearance. Roger was tied up and held at gunpoint by another man over a bad drug deal. The informant and his friend were poaching in the area, but took off after observing the disturbing scene. He said they heard two gunshots a few minutes later after they ran off. The two men agreed never to talk about the incident. The dying man was given a polygraph test and passed. His friend came forward and corroborated his story with the police. A massive search occurred in the wooded area, but nothing was found. Finally, in 2010, the old high school began a vast renovation and was changed into a middle school. It was hopeful that his remains would possibly be unearthed, but nothing was ever found. As of October 2022, Roger has never been located, and this case remains unsolved. Ian Ashley Richardson was born on March 19, 1976. Tragically, at the age of 13, he started being sexually abused by an older man in his 40s named John Taylor. Taylor was a chemist, a pedophile, and a neighbor of Ian and his family. In 1991, 
At about 15 years old, Ian told the police about the abuse, specifically when Taylor abused him during a camping trip in 1989 and again in 1990. Taylor was arrested and charged with the crime, but the charges were ultimately dismissed after Ian recanted his story. That same year, Denver police arrested Taylor on allegations of sexual assault on a different child. Though he was finally charged, the case against him was dropped. In 1992, Ian and Taylor were in a remote mountain mining cabin near Two Brothers Mine in Virginia Canyon near Idaho Springs in Clear Creek County. Taylor provided a lot of brandy to Ian until he passed out drunk. He woke up about 10 p.m. screaming in pain. Next to the bed was bloody gauze, a surgical knife, and a syringe next to a bottle of xylocaine used for pain. Taylor had circumcised Ian while he was passed out drunk. They would get into an argument that allegedly led to Ian punching Taylor in the face. Ian was then arrested and charged with assault and sent to juvie. He told police that Taylor circumcised him, but Taylor claimed Ian had done it to himself while he was drunk. Ian told a counselor that Taylor had threatened to hurt his mother, sister, and brother if he testified against him. At this point, he was 16 years old and lived in Denver, Colorado, near Lowell Boulevard and West 29th Avenue. Soon after his stay in juvie for hitting Taylor and reporting the circumcision to the police, he disappeared on April 30, 1992. Taylor soon became the prime suspect. After Ian's disappearance, Taylor claimed Ian had committed suicide. In 2002, nine years after he went missing, a friend of Taylor's went to the police and said Taylor told him he had shot Ian to death during a heated argument and chemically cremated his body. As a chemist, Taylor would definitely have the knowledge to do this, but he maintained his innocence in Ian's disappearance and said he was being framed. Also, in 2002, he pleaded guilty to possessing a Schedule IV controlled substance and he was sentenced to one year of unsupervised probation. That same year, police searched the remote cabin where Ian and Taylor had stayed. They found two vials of human hair, but they were unable to identify who it belonged to. Taylor explained that for years, a close friend of his went to a barber and he would keep locks of their hair. Officers identified three areas Taylor lived or may have frequently visited, the 4800 block of West 14th Avenue, Lowell Boulevard at West 29th Avenue, and the Idaho Springs area. Then in 2009, nearly 17 years after Ian's disappearance, Taylor was charged with sexually abusing two other boys. An 18-year-old man and a 21-year-old man reported that they were abused by Taylor when they were underage. Taylor pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He also admitted he had sexually abused Ian for several years until his disappearance, but denies having any part of him going missing. At one point, the Denver Post disgustingly referred to Taylor as Ian's lover. But the reality was, Ian was the victim of a serial child rapist. So after complaints were made, the Denver Post changed the headline to Police Believe Man Chemically Cremated Denver Teen's Body. 
Taylor has never been charged in connection to Ian's disappearance and presumed homicide, and as of October 2022, this case remains unsolved. Darius Rashad Churchill was born on November 4, 1992, to the late Glenn Lavelle Haymore and Thorell Ann Churchill in Denver, Colorado. He attended Manuel High School and grew up dancing, singing, and acting in plays at the New Jerusalem Baptist Church. Darius was described as intelligent and inspiring, with a very positive outlook on life. At the age of 22, Darius was still living in Denver and working as a transporter at the Denver International Airport. He was devoted to his community and church and had great respect for his grandmother, who was a pastor. Darius was very talented and enjoyed rapping and writing lyrics. On Sunday, January 4, 2015, tragedy would strike the Churchill family. At about 4.30 p.m., Darius was sitting at the bus stop on Bruce Randolph Boulevard in Denver on his way to the studio to produce the music he had written. Suddenly, someone drove by and fired multiple shots at Darius. Darius was transported to a nearby hospital and would die from his injuries. His many loved ones were devastated and still are. His mother pleads for someone to come forward with information about her son's murder. She misses her son dearly and to this day continues to listen to his recordings. There is still a $25,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction, and as of October 2022, this case remains unsolved. There isn't much information about this next case, but I wanted to get the word out on William Scott Hurtado. He went by his middle name, Scott, and at the age of 33, he was living in Alamosa, Colorado. He was described as very friendly and always willing to help someone in need. On February 17, 2017, he was last seen by friends coming out of his cabin and leaving in an older gray Silverado pickup truck in Alamosa. Scott was expected to travel to California for work but never arrived. Instead, he left his beloved dog Art behind at the cabin. He was extremely attached to Art and took him everywhere he went and would even pay for the airfare for them to fly together. When he didn't return to his cabin for Art and didn't make it to California as planned, his loved ones became very concerned. His sister and dad went to the cabin, picked up Art, and began searching for Scott. But unfortunately, there were no clues and no leads to his whereabouts. Over six months later, on September 9, 2017, human remains were found by hunters. They were expected to belong to either Scott or 28-year-old Benjamin Hamby, who had been missing from the area for five months. In the end, the remains were determined to belong to Benjamin Hamby. Sadly, Scott's dog Art passed away two years later, and his family believes he died of a broken heart. As of October 2022, Scott has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. 
As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.